Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much, Paul, for uh, encouraging us to fix our eyes on Jesus uh, during this time. And it is my prayer, too, that as we look into God's Word, you know, as it says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ, that faith would dwell up in our hearts as a result. And, uh, you know, as we're giving, as uh, ushers are coming to receive our morning tithes and offerings, uh, you know, part of uh, listening to God's Word is also a part of worship. And so I encourage you to, to view it as that. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Sam, and I'm the local and global outreach pastor And again, I want to welcome you to our series uh, this morning, those of us who are here and those uh, joining us online, uh, what we've entitled Encounter with Jesus. And we've had the privilege over the past few weeks to look at several encounters with Jesus. So with the Canaanite woman, with the Samaritan woman, with Zacchaeus, uh, with Mary and Martha and others. I have to say that these encounters were all uh, transformative in the lives of those people and hopefully for you as well. And today we're going to be looking at... um, Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. It's found in John, the Gospel of John. And if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn there uh, in John chapter 3. As uh, You can read along as I um, walk us through this passage of Scripture. And it will also be projected up on the screen. So John chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs unless you uh, that you do unless God is with him. Now, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, now, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. You know, Jesus' encounter with uh, Nicodemus is just so important, crucial for us to look at uh, this morning for two reasons that I can see. The first reason is that the term born again has been watered down um, over time and has changed and lost its, uh, much of its biblical meaning. Uh, the, uh, actually, for some, it's actually become a derogatory term. And for many Christians, they don't want to be identified as born again uh, because of fear of being labeled uh, fundamentalist, of what we know a lot from uh, uh, the people down south of us at the border. You know, because society has, has defined or uh, identified born-again Christians as uh, people who hold extremist views, right? Uh, if they merely believe in a literal translation of the Bible, if they hold uh, to views against sexual permissiveness, uh, abortion on demand, uh, homosexuality, or any views that they would deem politically incorrect. Now, the term uh, is actually given by Jesus and a New Testament writer. So it's really, it's profoundly important for us to actually look at what God does in our life uh, because it's, it describes what God does in our life. 
Now, to top it off, the statistics coming out of the Barna Group, that's a, a group that tracks and follows the trends of Christian thinking and uh, behavior, and also the book by Ron Sider entitled The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, Why Are Christians Living Just Like the Rest of the World? It tells us some pretty startling things. Um, for example, they found that 26% of evangelicals don't think that premarital sex is wrong. Of the 12,000 teenagers who took the pledge uh, to wait for marriage, 80% had sex outside of marriage within those seven years after taking the pledge. The, they say that the divorce rate among born-again Christians is pretty much the same as that of society, and only 9% of evangelicals tithe or give 10% of their income. So in other words, it would seem, it would seem from those statistics and many others that the evangelical church is uh, acting very much like the world. Now, I do have to say that, um, that when they use the term born again, uh, as defined in these stats, it's someone who said that they have a personal relationship with Jesus that actually impacts their lives. They indicate that they believe that they will go to heaven when they die because they've confessed their sins and that... Um, they um, uh, have accepted Jesus as their Savior. So this research refers to what people say about themselves. They say that they have a personal relationship with Jesus, or they say they believe that they're going to heaven when they die. Now, it's so important for us to make this distinction, because you know we can actually come to the conclusion from these stats that uh, this new birth that the Scripture talks about doesn't actually produce a radical life change. Right? You know, but the New Testament actually uh, is, uh, teach a complete opposite of that. They teach about the absolute certainty of a radical life change when a person becomes born again. And the Apostle John knew that when he called people to believe, uh, you know, in Jesus Christ and his gospel, that there would be some misunderstandings along the way. And um, in terms of what it means to believe. And that's their whole reason, uh, well, one of the main reasons that he wrote, First John, his epistle, uh, to further define the type of believing that this new birth actually brings. Let me give you some examples. First John chapter 2, verse 29. Now, if you know that he, God, the Father, is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Makes sense that if, he, if we are his children, that we will act like him. First John 3, 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, which means to make a practice of sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Uh, chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And lastly, chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. means conquers the ways of the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. So these are just some of the many verses in 1 John that highlight this point, that what it means to be born of God. And John was keenly aware of the failure of genuine Christians. He's not teaching perfectionism here, which means that, you know, we can actually achieve moral perfection here on earth. That's not what he's teaching. His point was not that born-again people in church are permeated with worldliness. But his point was that the church is permeated with people who are not born again. So today, in looking at Jesus' encounter with Jesus, we'll see that this new birth is, uh, is not just what people say about themselves. 
it's, uh, you know, more than that. It's more supernatural and life-transforming. The second reason Jesus' encounter is important to look at today is that as, a, as believers, I mean, we want people to become born again. I mean, that's the mission of our church, as Paul reminded us. I mean, our mission, again, hasn't changed. Even though with all the changes that we've been facing over this past year, we're still committed to that mission. Uh, just yesterday, Pastor Malad actually, again, had taken about 10 uh, youth uh, of um, our new Canadian families that he's been working with to Bible, Bible Beacon, Bible, Beacon Bible Camp. Boy, I didn't think that was hard to say. Uh, and some of you know that three weeks ago, uh, he took about um, 15 of, uh, of youth as well and had a phenomenal time playing, canoeing, uh, camping, and, and studying God's Word. And during that time, three of those uh, children gave their life to Christ. They put their trust in Jesus and believed in Him. Pastor Wright was just telling us, telling us this past week of a woman who came to Christ, and she was the one who um, had been mocking the, you know, when they would get together for Bible study. She, she would mock them uh, when they would be studying the Word of God, and during uh, that time uh, of just con- connecting with them and getting to know them, she gave her life to Christ. Our Manitoulin missions trip, as you know, had come back, and uh, they held a day camp up to one of our First Nations uh, communities, and during that time, three of the youth gave their lives to Christ. Uh, our Spain group um, had uh, also returned, and uh, you know they were helping Rupa and Elena in Spain to um, hold the camp there. And of the 35 campers uh, who attended, 11 made commitments to Jesus Christ. I mean, that's phenomenal. In fact, just this past Wednesday, James Payton uh, had uh, come back from a two-month internship with Envision and working with Rupa and Elena. That, her church, is her mission. So we're excited about that. So my hope and our hope together is that this narrative will just remind us what our mission is all about. I mean, that we won't get off track. And also, let's pray that as we delve into this encounter with Jesus, with Nicodemus, that we'll become, uh, we'll be able to understand more fully what it means to be born again. That we'll be able to articulate the gospel clearly, passionately, and effectively to our friends, our relatives, associates, and neighbors. So you can see that there's a lot at stake as we look at uh, this encounter with Jesus. So let's just take the time to unpack this portion of Scripture together. And before we begin, again, I just want to uh, remind you of the theme of the Gospel of John. Um, remember when we were walking through uh, Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman, and John's goal in his Gospel was that the people would believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And again, he wraps it up in the end of his Gospel in John Chapter 20, verse 13, when he says, But these are written, again, this gospel, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that in believing in him, you might have life in his name. And even from the very beginning, in, in John chapter 1, verse 12, and when he says that, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, or human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And then further on, as he works his way through uh, the gospel at the wedding in Cana in John chapter 2, where Jesus turns water into wine, John says, What Jesus did in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed him. So we know that the revelation of Jesus' glory is a way, uh, is the main way that we believe in 
Jesus is the Son of God. Now, again, to understand the whole context before we go into um, the story of Nicodemus, uh, we actually have to go back just a few verses, uh, starting at uh, John chapter 2, verse 23, where John writes, Now, when he, again, Jesus, speaking of Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there are really two things that um, I want to highlight from this passage of Scripture. The first is of Jesus' omniscience, his all-knowing character, that he is the all-knowing God. Remember that Jesus was going to help us to believe in Jesus by revealing his glory. Well, here in John chapter 2, verse 24, he says, He knew all people, and he knew what was in each person. So this is what John is on, the glory of the omniscience of Jesus Christ. In other words, no person is excluded from God's knowledge, and no person... Uh, No part of our life is excluded from Jesus. Jesus knew everybody, every single person who's ever been born or will ever be born, and he knew everything about everybody. I want you to stop and think about that. I mean, that we can easily pass that by. You are totally known. There is not a single part of your heart that Jesus doesn't know at this hour and every hour. And so we ask the question, well, what does that actually mean for us, that Jesus knows everything about us? Well, it means that there's no secrets in our life. It means that uh, we may have succeeded in hiding things uh, from people all of our lives, um, but it's not hidden from Jesus. You know, there's the saying that says that the person who matters the most is the one who knows the most, Right? And the person whose thoughts about you are most important knows all about you. Now, this is important because knowing this will shape your relationship with Jesus. Because on on one level, knowing that someone knows everything about you and everything about me can be really scary. And can actually drive us away from Jesus because of of feelings of shame and guilt, because of when we've uh, sinned against him. I mean, look at Peter. After beholding the glory of Christ, after he caught this great uh, catch of fish and the boat was ready to sink, what did Peter say? Get away from me, Lord. No, everything is totally laid before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus sees our hearts, all of our motives, all of our thoughts, and all of our feelings. He knows our past, our present, and our future. But Jesus doesn't shame us. But in fact, he gives us new life, as we'll see later. So, in one level, it could be uh, something that could drive us away from Jesus. It could bring feelings of shame. It could be scary. But on another level, it could actually be very comforting. So, in this macro level of human experience, I mean, we know all the injustices that are out there in the world. I mean, I'm talking about the crimes and the murders. Um, and all the violence that's out there. You know, I'm somewhat comforted. I know about you. I'm somewhat comforted that, that God, that Jesus knows all that's going on, that it doesn't go unnoticed, that Jesus is going to right all wrongs. And that starts with knowing that Jesus sees everything about everyone. 
It's also comforting in a micro level in our human experience because we know that we can go to someone who knows all about us. You know, husbands, have you ever had your wife tell you, I don't even think you know what you're feeling. And they're absolutely right, right? I don't know what I'm feeling most of the time. But we know that Jesus knows what we're feeling. And again, uh, I don't think there's... uh, there's a time, there's someone who's just this, uh, a person who's willing to love you, even when you know, uh, when they know everything about you, absolutely everything. And the reason he's willing to love you is because of his covenant love for you. For those who have put their trust in Jesus, it's interesting that Paul, you had talked about Jesus' priestly prayer in uh, John 17. Oh, Jesus prays to the Father, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. So Jesus is praying for those whom the Father has given him. Because these are his disciples. They are the Father's children. They're his friends. They're his sheep. And they're, they're the ones who have been born again. Born from above. And they believe in Jesus as their only hope and treasure. You know, I love um, what Jay Packer says in his book, Knowing God. When he says this. What matters supremely, therefore, is not, in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but that the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palm of his hands. I am never out of his mind. Of all, uh, all my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me, and he continues to know me. He knows me as a friend who loves me, And there is no moment where his eye is off of me. That's incredible. Or his attention distracted from me. Or no moment, therefore, when his care falters. God knows what you're going through in your deepest and darkest trial. You know, there's something, this is something, this is a truth that we have to go back to every day and every moment of the day. He sees every bump and bruise and every accident in our lives. He knows the illness you've been struggling with, the loved one you've lost, the battle with sin that, that's been beating you up, the depression and hopelessness that has been waging in your heart. He knows all about the shattered dreams um, that you've been despairing, of all the anxiety about the future that you've been facing. He knows it all. And you know, as has been said many times, he knows what we as a church have been facing. Um, you know, this is probably one of the biggest tests in our church history, church life. And I want to encourage you again by reminding you is that God is not wringing his hands in heaven and says, Oh, no, you know what's going on with Rexdale? God is our father. Jesus is the leader of our church. No moment, and there is no moment when his eyes off of us. Now, the second thing we learned from this passage of scripture is that there's actually a kind of faith that does not that jesus doesn't approve of now that's kind of hard to believe this is an implication of jesus omnipotence when he's looking at the people and uh john is highlighting this was just looking at the hearts of the people of those who believe and he sees a kind of faith that does not make them a child of god john chapter 2 23 or he says many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name I mean, I think about this as Jesus should have been ecstatic. 
right? Should have been so happy, but he's not. In verse 24, he says, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. When Jesus holds back and he doesn't entrust himself to them, um, he's saying that there's something wrong with their faith. Now, what could be wrong with their faith? I think there are some indications here. One hint is that this incident is actually mentioned as an introduction to, uh, to the encounter of Nicodemus uh, with Jesus that comes right after. In the end of John chapter 2, it ends off with the words, For he himself, Jesus, knew what was in a man. And then he goes to the next verse. And remember, in the original, uh, there's no um, you know, chapter headings, there's no verses so he says, for he himself knew what was in a man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So from this, I mean, it's compelling that from this, we can see that Nicodemus represents the people that Jesus was talking about at the end of chapter 2, a people who had a sort of faith, but not a faith that is a saving faith. Because Nicodemus says of Jesus, he is from God, that he is with God. And what he does are signs of God's power working through him. It's a, it really is a type of faith that many people in the world have of Jesus. I mean, there are um, many Muslims, many Jews of Buddhist, Buddhist background and Hindu background who believe in this, that he's a great man. He's... Um, powerful teacher that he is an inspired prophet that he is an uh, authoritative healer and I mean, that's what they believe about jesus but it's not saving faith and that's clear we see this in jesus response to what nicodemus said first he says generally truly truly i say to you unless one is born again he will not see the kingdom of god and then more specifically to demas you must be born again so we see that Nicodemus was not born again. I mean, that's clear. That's the point of this encounter with Jesus. That Nicodemus, even with all his faith, needed to be born again. Because what he saw was mostly natural and not spiritual. He was still spiritually blind. And he didn't see the true signs of the glory of the one and only Son. He saw the signs, and that those signs were so remarkable that his natural mind went to the point that, yeah, he must be from God. And we know that signs are meant to point people to Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah. But in John chapter 2, many of those people saw the sign, but did not see what they stood for. And that's why they need spiritual birth, because they couldn't see. And it's also significant that John says that he was a man of the Pharisees, a leader of the, of the Jews, a ruler of the Jews. Uh, earlier in chapter 2, John describes the first incident of Jesus clearing the temple. Right? And when he says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found that those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money, change, money changers sitting there. So you see this at the temple court, um, a place for prayer and for worship. There were you know, cages of pigeons and stalls for oxen and sheep. And then there were sellers kind of milling around, selling, um, you know, waiting for a sale. And there were also people who would come to exchange uh, people's money because they were coming from different parts. Uh, and so they had to have the right currency to make the purchase. 
So the outward kind of appearance or reason for this setup that we see in this uh, passage is that the law required sacrifices of oxen and sheep and pigeons. Uh, and many worshipers would actually come a long way. And so they wouldn't be able to bring their sacrifices with them. And so this actually was very convenient for those who were coming so they could purchase the animals right there. But it's interesting what Jesus says when he saw this. In verse 15, in making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So what made Jesus so angry? Well, look at the difference that he pointed out. You know, my father's house and a house of trade. You know, the father's house was to be for knowing and loving and worshiping the father. But instead they'd become a house of trade, of selling things. And so Jesus wasn't mad at the worshipers who, were, who had come, but he was mad at those who were selling. Because Jesus saw through their facade of here where they were thinking that they were helping the people. You know, that was the facade, helping people for, uh, for these reasons. But the real reason was actually greed. It was not about a love of God, but a love of money. And again, this is an implication of Jesus' omniscience. You knew the hearts of people, and Jesus saw their hypocrisy. I mean, this is religion uh, used as a front for greed. Jesus had made it clear of the religious legalism of the Pharisees was really because of the love of money. And uh, Jesus said in Luke 16, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other. He will, despise, uh, he will be devoted to one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And in Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he calls them. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. And again, what uh, the Jews' response to all of this? So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show for doing these things? Now, that's startling. I mean, that was, I don't think that was the response that Jesus was looking for. Because in their response, it showed that they already knew what they were doing was wrong. But they actually just wanted a sign. I mean, they're actually asking, well, we know what, you're doing, what we're doing is wrong, but what, but what authority do you do these things? Because who do you think gave these sellers the authority to be there? Well, if there's the religious leaders who are very likely getting a cut from the prophets. So, again, they look for a sign to cover their hypocrisy. It's interesting, you know, the word hypocrite, and many of you guys know this already, the word uh, for hypocrite in the, is a Greek term for actor. It literally means to wear a mask. So it's, it means to pretend to be someone you're not. The prophet Isaiah condemned the hypocrisy of his day when he said, The Lord says, These people come to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up of only rules taught by men. Then, centuries later, Jesus quotes the same passage of Scripture and he, uh, in condemning the religious leaders of his day. And again, he calls them, uh, the, these hypocrites, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. Call them brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs. Again, something pretending to be what they're not, what it's not. John wants to make sure that, um, that we know that Nicodemus is a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, because that's 
really the one point that, G- that John is trying to make. That despite of all of um, Nicodemus's religion, all of his amazing pharisaical learning of his discipline and law-keeping cannot replace the new birth that's needed. In fact, it actually even makes it more obvious for the need for new birth. Because, you know, in, uh, in this, we see a type of believing that actually leads to hypocrisy when it becomes all about law-keeping. When you don't have life, you have to pretend there's life there. Someone referred to this condition as spraying cologne on a corpse. Nicodemus was part of the religious elite. I mean, we know that, right? But he was not born again, like the people who only believed because of the miracles that Jesus performed. It shows that, that it's possible, that it's possible to see God at work in Jesus without God being at work in you. This just shows us again of our hopeless spiritual, moral, and legal condition before God and apart from God's grace. Before new birth happens, again, we are spiritually dead. Jesus tells us that we must be born from above. He's telling us that our present condition is corrupt and unresponsive to his love. So again, this term born again, and that's why we're, we're going to this um, narrative. It's so important because it reminds us that this new birth is not just um, an improvement of the human nature. You know, because sometimes when we're sharing the gospel, we say, you know, your life will be better. Right? I mean, we've all said that. I've said that. Your life will be better. But that just misses the point. It's not an improvement of the human nature, but a creation of a new one. When Nicodemus, what Nicodemus needed and what you and I all need is life but not religion. The point that Jesus is referring to new birth is that new birth brings new life into the world. So in one sense, Nicodemus is alive, right? He's walking, he's talking, he's breathing. But to Jesus, he was dead. There's no spiritual life in him. You know, and again, there's so much more to say in, in this. I mean, there's, uh, but again, as, as, actually, as I close, let's move to a time of prayer. I just want to, um, I want to close with an invitation. I'm not going to ask you to come to the front or raise your hand, but if you're here today, and again, if you've been investigating the claims of Christ, I want to encourage you to believe in Jesus today, all of what John's been doing. I mean, that's why that's, uh, the gospel of John is given out more to, to seekers than any other gospel. It's his invitation to believe in Jesus. Or maybe you've been a churchgoer, uh, again, your whole life or for a big period of your life, but you've never experienced what it means to be born again. Maybe you're actually just a conservative person uh, or a moral or a religious person, and you're just actually at home at a church. But you're not experiencing the kind of life described in John chapter 3. I want to encourage you to believe in Jesus today. I want to also talk to the young people. Um, many of you have grown up in the church. I mean, you've gone to Sunday school. You've gone to um, youth group. gone to church services. And I want to tell you that that doesn't save you. I think you know that already. Um, saying a prayer doesn't actually save you. It's Jesus who saves you. And it's the Spirit of God who unites you to him and brings new life. I remember a few years ago, um, a speaker at a youth group that our uh, youth went to uh, challenged the youth and said that maybe many of them were not born again. I remember many of the youth coming back 
And they were so angry. Some of them were just so angry. How dare he say that we're not born again? For some, uh, they took that time. I remember my son just agonizing over that fact and even asked me, Dad, am I born again? And for those who agonized, they came through and walked through. But I remember there are people who were the angriest, who are not even walking with God today. So I just appeal to you, you know, test your faith. Jesus made it clear that we must believe, put our trust in, to rely on Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins through his atoning work on the cross, for the exchange of our unrighteousness with his perfect righteousness. That belief involves just a humble acknowledgement that we need God, that we're sinful, and we need his grace, that all our good works is not enough. It involves actually turning away from our old life, from our sin, and repentance, and humbly acknowledging that we need to be born again of the Spirit from above. This is what it means to have new life in Christ. So go to him in humble submission. Put your trust in him and his finished work on the cross. And then talk to a life group leader or your youth leader or um, one of the pastors or elders or those who you know, what, you know are, they're, they're genuine, genuinely know what it means to be born again and ask them to walk with you, to pray with you, and to help you in your journey of faith. And for us as a church, I just want to invite us to truly believe in Jesus. Again, when John says, you know, believe in Jesus, this is not something that we just say at the beginning of our faith journey. He says, okay, check, I believe in Jesus. It means believing in Jesus every moment, every day. And so right now, with all that we're going through, it's an opportunity for us to believe in Jesus. We are his children, and we're reminded that he never takes his eyes off of us. We have the opportunity to actually walk in our identity as children of God at this time. And remember that it's not what we say that makes us born again. It's that work of God in our spirit. The call of John is for us to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God and the head of our church. And again, in this time of potential discouragement uh, and division, it's a great opportunity to us for us to believe in God, for us to look to him as the one who will lead us and guide us. And it is our desire that we will glorify him in all that we do and that we will be able to fulfill his mission. Let me just pray for us. Father, again, we thank you for your word. And I pray that it would just permeate, it would seep through our hearts and our minds, that we want to be able to uh, be the kind of uh, born-again Christians that um, John writes about. That we're born of God as we overcome the world as we love one another, as um, we do what is right. And so we know that we can't do that out out of our own energy or flesh, but it has to come by your Spirit. So we invite you to do that again. I pray for those who have just been investigating these claims of Christ, and I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. They would truly repent of sin and turn to you and believe you for all who you are, the Son of God, the Messiah, and that their life would be radically changed. Lord, we pray for how the society views born-again Christians. That they have seen what people say, not what they do. Lord, so much of what it means to be Christians now is about what we're against. I pray that people would see us for the life that is in us, overflowing, whether it be at work, in our neighborhoods, or at home. Lord, empower us, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.